growing fires and worsening air quality. Social issues showed up and said, now you gotta go, it's a serious thing. The latest from 100 Mile and other BC hotspots. New details in the investigation of unmarked graves. They were children robbed of their families and their childhood. The discoveries in an orchard and how archaeology will play a part in solving the mysteries. And a big move for the cruise ship industry. It's a big boost for us to hear the news today. When our ports will open and why the border will likely stay closed. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Entire communities are on edge tonight as BC's wildfire season really heats up. Hundreds of people in the Caribou area ready to evacuate at a moment's notice as wildfires burn at their doorstep. We begin our coverage tonight with Paul Johnson, who is live in 100 Mile House. Uh, that town, Paul, currently under evacuation alert. Yeah, that's right, Sophie. Smoky and nerve-wracking would be a fair description of the situation tonight here in 100 Mile House. So they're under evacuation alert. That means be packed and ready to go at a moment's notice if that turns into an order. Now that order has already been given to at least 1,500 properties in areas east of here. Those are roughly along the southern shore of Canham Lake and a rural community east of here called Lone Butte. Now, we've got dozens of wildfires burning across southern B.C. today, but the area around 100 Mile House is where most of the evacuation orders have been happening. Here's how people are getting by with this. To me, they're, they've dropped the ball on this, uh, this fire uh, suppression, everything. It's, uh, you know, I, uh, it just gets me so infuriated, I just don't know what to say. Everybody gets in the panic mode. And it is just, uh, I don't think, I think what they're doing is creating panic where they don't need to create. You know, sure, it's nice to have a warning and everything, but just take it cool. You'll have lots of time to get out. All right, Paul, we know some patients were moved from the hospital yesterday, but Interior Health is taking further action today to move people with medical issues. Yeah, that's uh, right. We're hearing that 40 people were moved out of a long-term care facility or wing here as a precaution, though we're told uh, the hospital remains open. I mean, one issue on top of whether this alert actually becomes an evacuation order, of course, is the issue of air quality. It's very smoky here. It got a little bit better just before we came on air here, but it's been pretty bad. And of course, it can get worse very quickly. So anybody with any medical issues, they're very concerned about them. Mm -hmm. Sophie. All right. Thanks for that. Paul Johnson for us in 100 Mile tonight. There are so many fires burning in the province right now. Firefighters are prioritizing their response, concentrating on saving people and property. In fact, firefighters are already confronting conditions they would not normally see until August. Catherine Urquhart has the latest. Now we are closed until further notice. At Headwaters Family Camp, they're packing up and leaving. An evacuation order has been issued for 43 properties, a result of the Brenda Creek Fire, 40 kilometers west of Kelowna. Getting all of the cabins secured, uh, all of the buildings secured, any of our equipment that was laying out, putting that away, getting it secured. Central Okanagan Search and Rescue has been making sure everyone is out and that no one returns to the area. 
Uh, we asked him to uh, turn around and head back because this area is uh, an active fire zone and we really don't want to have to come back in and get you. In the Chilcotin, a military helicopter was needed to evacuate some members of the Okacho First Nation as road access was cut off by two wildfires. The challenge that we're seeing this year than what we haven't seen even in 2017 is the extraordinary drought that we're seeing across pretty much the south half of the province. So you have that stress in the ecosystem followed up by maybe one of the, the driest springs on record. There are now more than 300 active wildfires in the province. 22 of those started in the last 48 hours. 97 of the fires are considered out of control. 28 of those listed as fires of note. Uh, yesterday they told me to get the heck out of there. <laughs> In the Caribou, heavy smoke can be seen from the Canham Lake fire, which spans 1,600 hectares. Evacuation orders and alerts are in place. Just got to figure out which is your best route and get your plans all done and figure out what you're taking, what you're not. You know, when you think that you could lose your house again, there's a chance of losing it all, you know, everything you've got. BC's fire season is now so extreme, it's estimated to be a full month ahead of a typical year. More than 2,800 properties are on evacuation order. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Well, the current order keeping the Canada-U.S. border closed to non-essential travel is set to expire next Wednesday, even as COVID cases in many American states are on the way back up. As Aaron MacArthur reports, those rising numbers suggest the now 16-month-long closure might continue. The race to vaccinate Americans has run into a sizable hurdle. People unwilling to roll up their sleeves and the consequences are being felt coast to coast. I think we have to be to be very, very cautious. We're at a tipping point right now. The Delta variant has caused cases to rise in almost every state. In Mississippi, just 33% of people are fully vaccinated and hospitals are starting to fill up. COVID wards are being reopened. In Arkansas, case counts are doubling every 10 days. We're going to overwhelm the healthcare system here in Arkansas within the next 14 days. With the U.S. faltering, a deadline is approaching. The current border restrictions are set to expire next week. Tourism operators say getting access to U.S. clients is a key component to staying in business. The vaccine gives us hope, and the fact that uh, fully vaccinated Canadians can return from the States, we're hoping that means that also fully vaccinated Americans can come across the border. Canadian foreign policy experts say there is little appetite on either side of the 49th parallel for a reopening. It's been a very effective way of maintaining border closures while not you know, committing economic suicide. Canadians, by and large, happy with that sentiment. A recent poll conducted by Angus Reid shows 69% willing to wait until three quarters of our population is fully vaccinated before we open the gates. So we've committed to Canadians to make decisions when it comes to travel or any other public health measures based on science and data. The Prime Minister will be addressing the border in a call with premiers Thursday afternoon. As more people become fully immunized, expect more incremental changes to the border restrictions. But a fully open border doesn't appear to be on anyone's agenda in the short term. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. A slight uptick today in COVID-19 infections. We have 54 new cases in B.C. 650 of those cases are active. 
63 people are in hospital, 12 of them in the ICU. And sadly, the six-day break in COVID deaths ended with one in the last 24 hours. We're nearly 80% vaccinated with a first dose for those 12 and older, and 48.6% have received their second dose now. We'll bring in Keith Baldry with more on how those numbers compare to our closest neighbor to the south, Washington State, Keith, and what that might mean as we consider timing for the border reopening. Yeah, I've been tracking Washington State numbers since the beginning of the pandemic. They were starting to improve the last few weeks, but they've sort of plateaued at a fairly high level. And again, if you look at the numbers, hard to see how that border is reopening. Here's how we stack up with just a few days, July 9th to 13th, our comparison to Washington State. They've got about one and a half times as the population as us. But our daily case number is 46, and Washington, uh, 504 cases a day. We were at that level some months ago. Hospitalizations, again, rel relatively few people in B.C. in that period in hospital with 240 people in Washington. And again, their death rate continues to be unacceptably high. 30 people passed away from COVID-19 in just a, a space of four days there. So again, looking at that, hard to see how that border is going to reopen. Government officials I've been talking to in BC don't expect the July 1st to be, be an opening, more likely August 21st uh, for the most expected optimistic date for opening that border. All right, we'll see what happens. Keith, thank you. Well, that may be the land border, but cruise ships will be allowed back in Canadian waters starting in November, provided operators meet certain health requirements. And while that is good news for the tourism industry, there are some doubts as to how many large cruise lines will actually come here. Richard Zussman is live in Victoria tonight with more on why that is a worry. Richard. Yeah, Sophie, Thursday typically would be the busiest night here at the port in Victoria. The biggest cruise ship would come in in the summer, but for two summers in a row now, no cruise ships, which means the tourism industry has been sinking. The hope is the news today provides some float, but there are still some challenges. Getting ready to cruise. The cruise ship operators would be able to prepare and be ready for full operations by the start of the 2022 cruise season. The ban on cruise ships in Canadian waters set to end November 1st. Cruise ships currently operating internationally are requiring guests to be fully vaccinated before getting on board. But because the COVID situation is evolving, it's unclear whether those requirements will be in place here and anywhere else by the spring. We're going to make sure that we coordinate with the local public health agency, with the federal public health agencies, with local stakeholders. Uh, uh, on ensuring that we have the right and proper measures in place. Cruising is big business in B.C., $2.7 billion into the provincial economy, a massive chunk of the $4 billion cruise brings into Canada each year. For tourism operators like Tom Walker, this is a trot in the right direction. To our business, it uh, represents roughly about 50% of the income that we have coming in here. We supply to the cruise ship uh, industry roughly. We can handle 100 passengers per cruise uh, ship that comes in here. But there are still choppy waters ahead the industry and government must navigate. The United States passed legislation this year to temporarily allow cruise ships heading to Alaska to skip Canada. And there's still legislation before the U.S. Senate that would make that permanent, altering a more than century-old law requiring ships to stop here. We really do have to keep our eye on, uh, on uh, the bill uh, south of the border and to ensure that that doesn't gather any momentum. I'm hoping that today's announcement will perhaps uh, give Alaska some certainty and uh, not make that bill uh, as necessary as it may be.
All right, Richard, do we know when that Alaska question will be resolved? Yeah, that is the big question, Sophie. And legislation takes a long time in the United States and sometimes can be unpredictable. So there are two possible outcomes here. The first of those changes remain temporary as originally planned. The realization is that cruisers love to come to British Columbia, Victoria and Vancouver and things go back to normal. But the other option is that the economies in Seattle and Alaska realize that they're making a lot more money if the cruise ships can skip Victoria and Vancouver and Prince Rupert and and ultimately, legislatures there make a decision to make this thing permanent. Obviously, British Columbia is hoping that is not the case, and that's why they are working so hard behind the scenes to try to make sure that that legislation to make it permanent never passes. So, All right, we'll see what happens with that. Richard Zussman, live in Victoria. B.C. conservation officers say they trapped and euthanized four coyotes they believe were involved in attacks on people in Stanley Park, including a two-year-old girl. They're still looking to destroy two more. Jordan Armstrong talked to one expert who says it's time to crack down on people who feed the animals. The park is safer, say conservation officers, but not completely safe. Four coyotes have been put down, but another two aggressive animals could still be out there. So it is very, very important that people remain very cautious in, in the park. Uh, if they choose to come in the park, they need to be very aware of their surrounding and be ready to encounter a uh, possible aggressive coyote. More than 30 people attacked in the last seven months. The latest victim, a two-year-old girl, mauled Monday near the aquarium parking lot. I spoke with the father yesterday and she's smiling. She has a good spirit, so we wish her very well. He says the four coyotes, all seemingly healthy adults, were caught in soft foothold traps and then killed. He adds it's not clear how many of the animals call Stanley Park home, but he says there are no plans to eliminate the entire population. It is believed that it's possible to have coyotes here and they can play a role and they can be uh, having normal coyote behavior. Now, speaking of behavior, what to do about the humans who illegally feed wild animals in Stanley Park. It is strongly suspected that played a role in the coyotes losing their fear of people, while the Vancouver Park Board and the Conservation Officer Service still prefer education over enforcement. This animal rights lawyer says it's time they take out the ticket book. And that is when people are going to start learning a lesson. Coyotes should not be paying the ultimate price with their lives for human arrogance, negligence, and recklessness. For now, trails west of the Stanley Park Causeway remain closed. Conservation will reassess the situation sometime Friday. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. The next step to solve a mystery in Kamloops, identifying all of the remains of children believed buried on the grounds of the old Kamloops Residential School will be a huge challenge. And the Kamloops Tishwetmuk are asking for help. That's next on the News Hour. Oh my God, I've never seen anything like this in my life. Wild weather in Ontario, the tornado that touched down in Barrie coming up on the News Hour. And the epic new tourist attraction on Vancouver Island that'll have you jumping for joy. We'll take you on a tour of the Malahat Skywalk later.
Right now, though, a warning. The following material might be triggering. Another emotionally charged day for the Tecumlips to Schwepmik band. It is revealing new details of the initial ground-penetrating radar search of the former Kamloops residential school site. Nithu Garcha is live in Kamloops with more. Nithu, while we learned more today about those discoveries, it was the stories of three elders, survivors, that gave a powerful voice to this heavy truth of the residential school experience. That's right, Sophie. Their pain was palpable, as was their strength, and there were very few dry eyes in the room as those survivors took to the podium during a live-streamed event and opened up about their trauma. To Kamloops to Schwetmik Chief Roseanne Kazmier's message to them today was, we see you, we love you, and we believe you. Kamloops Indian Residential School is. Many of our children tried to cross the rivers to swim across. Many were lost in the waters. It's a new dawn on the efforts to wake more people up to the truths elders like Evelyn Camille have been speaking for generations. The residential schools were specifically built to take the Indian out of us, but it did not work. It did, however, lead to a lifetime of trauma. Survivor stories, she says, that haven't been believed until now. We had tried to mention over and over and over there are many children missing. We were strapped and beaten. You could scream and scream. There was no one there to come to your help. Elder Mona Jules recounts a childhood spent in the cold, dark confines of a confusing place. When I first got there on my first day, the principal carried me up the stairs, up to the dorm. And often 100 years later, that was correct. She became a respected researcher and language instructor who devoted her career to revitalizing her traditional language. Finding the strength to carry on like this takes years, says survivor Leona Thomas. It took me a long time to be able to cry. It was difficult to be able to share emotions. Today, not so much. And the investigation into the unmarked graves found near their former residential school has evidence of those as young as six digging shallow graves less than a meter below the surface. This investigation has barely scratched the surface, covering just under two acres of the total 160-acre residential school site. She says the discovery of a child's rib bone by a tourist and a child's tooth found in a test pit about 20 years ago are among the reasons why this portion of the land was targeted, paving the way for the next steps. Confirming, identifying, and repatriating the children. And it's those carrying the burden of truth who are leading the way. Our community was one to look after each other. But these residential schools took that away from us. Our language, our way of life. Wow. Grateful to them, Nitu, for sharing their stories with us. This is obviously very sensitive work. Uh, what are you learning about how this investigation and the gathering of remains will proceed? 
Well, Sophie, the Tecumloops Tishwetmik, along with the Canadian Archaeological Association, will be releasing best practices on how to gather information about unmarked burial sites in a sensitive way. They've also created a working group to help find missing children. A clear indication that the graves that have been revealed so far on those grounds behind me are just part of the beginning of a very long road to reconciliation. Sophie? Nitu Garcha reporting in Kamloops. Thanks for that, Nitu. And up next, a racist rant caught on camera. Go back to your country. Support pours in for the Kelowna security guard who took the abuse. Also tonight, a Vancouver homeowner on a slippery slope with a landslide in the backyard. A disturbing racist tirade captured on camera is now being investigated as a hate crime. The suspect is a well-known protester who verbally assaulted a security guard at a Kelowna COVID vaccination clinic. Darian Matassa Fung reports. Go back to India. Go back to India. Kelowna RCMP are investigating a possible hate crime as a known COVID protester went on a racial tirade aimed at a sick security officer. The racist tirade happened here at a vaccination clinic at Trinity Church, Kelowna, when about a dozen anti-lockdown protesters showed up and one of them singled out one of the security guards. The security officer is Anmal Singh, a 23-year-old South Asian immigrant from India who has lived in Kelowna for four years. It felt really bad. It just uh, was like a hate crime and um, I talked to the police officers too because I didn't really felt good at all. And uh, how he said it in front of a lot of people, it just, just felt really bad to me. And uh, when I went home, like the whole thing happened, I couldn't sleep because it's just so tragic. Singh says he hasn't experienced much racism in Canada so far and that this incident was traumatic. When this happened, like, you know, I just started two months ago, so it's like totally new thing to me, right? And. Uh, I just feel really upset, like, you know, just felt uh, that I was not being welcomed in this country. The man who was caught on video is no stranger to global news as he's been front and center at numerous anti-lockdown protests in Kelowna. He has been named through social media. His name is Bruce Ordzik. You are not a Canadian. You are disgusting. Kelowna RCMP say hate speech charges are something it's exploring. At this point, we are investigating that quite actively. Uh, we're working in conjunction with the Provincial Hate Crimes Unit, and we're looking at it in terms of whether it meets the Section uh, 319 in the Criminal Code uh, for hate speech. Kelowna Mayor Colin Bazran says he's all for the right to protest, but actions like this are deplorable. It was hard to watch, uh, really hard to watch. When you see what this person has been doing around our community for a number of months, uh, you get an idea of who we're dealing with here. Um, and it's just really unfortunate that this person feels like he can treat people this way. Uh, it's completely unacceptable, it's ignorant, and it's not welcome here in our city. Go back to India. We I'm don't want you. We don't uh, want you here. Anyone who witnessed the confrontation is asked to contact Kelowna RCMP. Darian Matassa, Fung Global News, Kelowna. It's not every day you wake up to a landslide, but that's what happened in South Vancouver's Tugboat Place this morning. The homeowners heard a loud sound around 4.30 a.m. as mud, trees and debris filled their backyard, knocking down a retaining wall in the process. They say they didn't realize the extent of the damage until it became light outside, and only then did they realize their beloved deck and yard were completely covered. City of Vancouver Engineering Department inspected and has deemed the property stable enough to inhabit.
it's kind of unsettling, but at least it, I feel happy that they said it looks like it's stable. So we can at least go back to live in a home. We thought we'd have to go to a hotel. Jang says the strata has been concerned about the stability of the slope with all the construction going on at the iconic Casamia property above it. Still ahead, an epic test of human endurance. Are you mad? <laughs> I get that a lot. How exhaustion is the least of her worries as she crosses the Atlantic in an appropriately named rowboat. And BC becomes the first to offer a safer supply of street drugs. Can it save lives in a deteriorating downtown and beyond? Good evening. Crews are on scene to a crash here in Surrey, northbound on King George Boulevard, just before 104th Avenue. In home to car insurance, BCAA's local experts are here for all your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Surrey. Businesses in downtown Vancouver are being hit with an increase in break and enters, and the evidence lies in the number of boarded-up windows dotting the peninsula. Each time you see one, it means thousands in unexpected costs for a business owner. Ramina Dea reports. Linda Rafosco is going to have to cut a lot of hair to recoup epic losses she recently suffered. This whole episode, uh, about $10,000. $10,000 to replace the glass at her hair salon after an attempted break-in roughly two weeks ago. On top of that, Rafosco is on a wait list to get the repairs done. They're so busy. I phoned multiple glass companies and we're at least five weeks away from getting our glass replaced. There's an issue. Do you think it has become worse since the pandemic? Absolutely. The salon, just one of many downtown Vancouver businesses, boarded up. Break-ins exacerbated by the pandemic. How many times have you dealt with this since the pandemic? Uh, the glass, is, we've had to replace the glass three, three times. Um, there have been five attempts. Five attempted break-ins in just a year at a historic institution. $20,000 in goods stolen from the Vancouver pen shop two weeks ago. Fixing the busted windows, another five grand. I was kind of mad. Um, frustrated. Um, incensed. 2020 was the worst year in a decade for B&Es at Vancouver businesses, according to the VPD's latest report to the police board. The reason? Likely the pandemic. No more excuses. Rafosco says it's time the government steps up before things get any worse down here. Downtown, there's a big issue with mental health and um, drug addiction, and it's a big problem. But... I'm not angry, I just wish something was done about it. Um, it needs to be addressed. Romina Dea, Global News. Well, as if on cue, the B.C. government is expanding its program to make safer drugs available to addicts in an effort to curb the devastating epidemic of overdose deaths. As Ted Chernecki reports, the new policy comes as overdose statistics continue to hit unprecedented levels. 
It's been six long years since a medical health emergency was declared in B.C. Since then, more than 7,000 people have died from overdoses or now poisoned street drugs. We are making progress, but it is never fast enough or enough. The numbers don't support that. In 2020, there were 1,728 overdose poisoning deaths, the most ever. In 2021, the deaths to date are 851, almost 300 more than the same time last year. We're well on pace for another tragic record. The crisis is running first responders ragged, with more than 17,000 overdose calls last year. This is not progress. This is, this is accepting it as normal. And that, that can't be the case. We can't accept mass death as normal. Today, we are expanding prescribed safe supply in British Columbia to separate people who use drugs from the increasingly toxic, illicit drug supply. Over and above the fentanyl patches that the province has been providing, they're adding Fentora, injectable and tablet hydromorphone. And instead of it being simply a guideline for prescribers, it will now become government policy with $22.6 million more over three years. We are fanning this program out into the health authorities. It means we're both going to get the team-based approach that Dr. Chow in particular spoke about on um, what a, a comfort and a support that is for people prescribing. Many doctors had been reluctant to prescribe a clean supply of fentanyl or other powerful opioids for fear of ramifications if they didn't get it right. There's nothing here that will actually allow greater and more equitable access. That's what we need to do. In short, this is an expansion of an existing program and one that has helped about 10% of the addicts at most. We're talking uh, in people who have accessed um, some form at one point or another in the, th the 6,000 people range um, in the last year. But we know that there's as many as 60 thousand people who have um, some form of substance use disorder in the province. Ted Chernacki, Global News. Just ahead, what goes up must come down. <laughs> yes, that's Kylie Stanton climbing the new Malahat Skywalk to take in the view and getting a wild ride down. But first, battered in Barrie, what happened when a tornado touched down in Ontario? You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Just before we get to Yvonne and our weather forecast, scenes of devastation and damage north of Toronto in the Barrie area where a tornado touched down, plowing through a neighborhood today. Holy there's a tornado right there. Oh my God, I've never seen anything like this in my life. The pictures, obviously incredible. The damage being called catastrophic. The tornado touched down at 2.30 this afternoon local time. Neighborhoods in the southeast part of the city took the brunt of the force. Police going door to door to check on residents. There are a number of injuries and as you can see, dozens of homes damaged or destroyed. 
Amazing stuff. Okay, a little more benign here and still no sign of the rain many regions need. Let's check in with Yvonne now for the very latest. We're on day 30. No precipitation. We may have a slight chance to see a bit of a sprinkle for tomorrow, and I'll have the timeline in just a moment. Back on the tornado very quickly, though. A shout-out to Eric just at Environment Canada. We were searching for some data, and if you're curious about the tornadoes in Canada, Western University actually has a great resource. It's the Northern Tornadoes Project, and you can track down all the tornadoes that report, and this is some data that was taken from this year and we can see so far confirmed 30 and there's about 89 reports so a great resource if you're curious about the tornadoes across the country now the weather picture for us uh, through the day today was a touch cooler we had a bit more cloud cover out there and temperatures were sitting into the low 20s right now we're at 20 with the southeasterly wind at 20 kilometers per hour now overnight tonight we'll see that cloud cover we've got a mainly cloudy sky for tomorrow heads up it's going to feel cooler especially in comparison to the record-breaking heat that we've been seeing and then overnight we haven't seen this in a while and this will take us in towards our Saturday a 30% chance to see a shower a sprinkle will be little in terms of precipitation and that'll actually be in towards our Saturday morning as well smoky skies bulletin oops I skipped quite quickly but it's blanketing the province so those with respiratory issues are advised to limit the amount of time spent outdoors and high to extreme is what we're looking at for the fire danger rating across the province so extreme is the areas that are in red so please be very diligent we do have some active weather we do have rain along the northern half of the province so it'll be for coastal areas and the instability is going to pick up especially across the central interior for tomorrow we've got dry lightning potential and we are looking at precipitation now for the northern half tomorrow it'll stay as rain across the coast it's inland for the central interior this extends all the way in towards the okanagan valley with the hot and dry conditions dry lightning will be a big concern through the day tomorrow and along the south coast different weather picture we've got a mainly cloudy sky it'll be cooler rebounding though into the weekend especially for the latter half 26 away from the water tonight's weather window smoky skies this one captured by trevor so thank you so much very hazy all right thanks yvonne for sure all right it is opening day for what's billed as bc's latest world-class tourist attraction as Kylie Stanton reports, the Malahat Skywalk on Vancouver Island promises to give everyone the kind of spectacular views that were once only available to the most adventurous of hikers. If that's the reaction, seeing it through FaceTime. This is so cool. Just imagine what it's like in person. It's just beyond words. Yeah, this is incredible. Never seen anything like this before in my life. What started out with just an idea has grown. We've got a 3,000 square foot welcome center when you arrive. Grown longer. You follow a 600 meter elevated walkway through the treetops. Grown taller. And you come to our uh, spiral tower. From conception to construction. Now finally complete. 19 months later, here we, here we are, opening day of Malahat Skywalk. The main attraction is 130 feet high. With roughly 10 loops inside the columns, the walkway winds its way up to the observation deck, complete with an adventure net dangling over the center of the tower. And of course, 360 degree views. This is the real West Coast. This is the real Vancouver Island. And, uh, and that's, that's what we want to share with people. And that means everyone. The skywalk is built with a 5% grade, making it truly accessible. The dramatic views, usually only available to skilled climbers, now within easy reach of everyone. From young ones in strollers to the elderly, and even those in wheelchairs. And so our mission was to make that easier for people to connect with nature. It's fair to say, mission accomplished. Just look at this, this is amazing. It's really spectacular. 
I like it. I love it. And just when you think it couldn't get any better, they add a slide. After all, what goes up must come down. The slide is absolutely the most popular. People have expressed themselves the loudest on the slide, for sure. Epic. It was really fast. Yeah, that's what I liked. Something this unique seems to have what it takes to exceed all expectations, even if they're sky high. I don't know how to describe it for people. They should just come up and try it, and they will really be impressed. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Yeah, architecturally it looks very cool. Wow, that is going to be busy this summer after that, I'm sure. And Squire says he would do the slide, but yeah. getting you up to the... That's the problem. I would happily do yep. the slide because I can't see how high I am. Mm -hmm. It's the right. seeing how high you are that gets me. Well, blindfold you on the way up then. Yes. But you know what? I know what you're doing, so and I know how high I am, so that's the problem. You're going to have to, like, I don't know, knock me out with some sort of drug and then put me on the slide when I'm coming to. Okay, so uh, good news for the Vancouver Canucks because, like a pinball wizard, Elias Pedersen has a supple wrist again. <laughs> he is shooting pucks with speed and power. Back home in Sweden as his injured wrist appears to be healed. Phew. Also tonight, paddle power. A BC woman and her team preparing to battle elements in an epic row across the Atlantic. All right, Canuck Nation, let's have a sigh of relief. Well, they have well, to get maybe. Elias Pettersson signed, but you're right, this is, uh, this is good because uh, Pettersson is back home in Sweden. He is uh, working the numbers, I guess, as well to get a new contract with the Vancouver Canucks, and he's also working on getting his injured wrist back in shape. And judging by the video he put out, things are improving. We haven't seen Pettersson take a shot since March 2nd. That was the last game he played last season. He has said he's back to shooting again, feels really good, certainly seems to be getting some snap in the shot. He loves to put videos out on Instagram and Twitter. Both he and Quinn Hughes need new contracts from the Canucks this summer. Now, you might remember at the Tampa Bay Lightning Championship celebration earlier this week, the Stanley Cup itself took a head shot. The top of the cup was bent rather severely, but it went to a championship trophy body shop in Montreal for repairs, and there it is now. It looks like nothing ever happened to it. So it's good to go for members of the Lightning to have individual days with it. Round one of the British Open, or the Open Championship, if you like, at Royal St. George's. Oh, apparently the Stanley Cup is still getting repaired there. Um, Louis Oosthuizen, this approach shot helped him to a six under par. Now, he was second at the U.S. Open in the PGA this year. He leads the British Open after one round. One of the guys one shot back is Jordan Spieth at minus five. Mackenzie Hughes, good Canadian boy, on the 10th. That's a birdie. He had another birdie a couple of holes later. He's tied for fourth at four under par, two off the lead. Corey Connors today, another Canadian who was eighth at the Masters. Two under par, started with the birdie on number one. He's tied for 19th. He did have a double bogey today, but... And does. He's in the top 20. Phil Mickelson, though, tied for dead last. Phil shot an 80. Now, I would be happy with an 80 at Royal St. George's. Chris would be happy with an 80. Most people would, but not Phil. Uh, Adam Hadwin was five over par today. 
Uh, BC's Voshik Pospisil has decided to skip the Olympic, ten- Olympic tennis tournament because he doesn't want to further damage his right shoulder, which has been giving him problems of late. Of course, Denis Shapovalov and Bianca Andreescu have already pulled out of the Olympics. Gold Cup of CONCACAF. There's Max Crapo and Lucas Cavallini of the Whitecaps playing for Canada against Haiti today. Uh, Stefan Ustaquio with a nice free kick goal to give Canada a 1-0 lead. And then Kyle Laren's going to score here to make it 2-0. It was 2-1, but then Canada got a couple of more goals in this one, so they beat Haiti by the score of 4-1. They're 2-0 at the tournament, but the next game is going to be tough against the U.S., and Canada doesn't have Alfonso Davies, who is injured. Back in 2019, the last time the BC Lions played, their offensive line did not do a great job of protecting quarterback Michael Riley. Uh, partway through the season, they changed offensive line coaches. They brought in former Lion Kelly Bates, who was still with them in 2021. And veterans like Suk Chung are glad that Kelly stayed. Kelly, you know, he takes a lot of pride in what he does. And it's nice having a guy like that around. And working with Coach Bates has been awesome because of his passion for the game and how he's able to communicate with us, being a player himself in the past and being able to communicate the right way to his, you know, players that he's coaching and uh, you know we're just all trying to buy into his uh, his teaching ways and um, you'll see a lot of that and it's been a it's been good so far. Matisse Kivlenix was called a hero today by his friend and fellow Columbus goalkeeper Elvis Merzlikens. Kivlenix was killed at a house party on July 4th when he was hit in the chest by an errant firework causing severe damage to his heart and his lungs. Merzlikens said he and his pregnant wife were also at the party, and Kivlenix jumped in front of the firework to protect his friends. He saved not just many lives, but when it happened, I was standing 20, 30 feet back of him, and I was hugging my wife. He saved my son. He saved my wife, and he saved me. He died as hero, and I'm, and that's not me saying. That was the doctor saying. And we have more sad news. Former Vancouver Province columnist and sports editor Kent Cookie Gilchrist died at the age of 72 of cardiac arrest. Worked at the province for over 30 years. He was one of those guys you always knew when he was in the room. And you were glad he was in the room because the moment he arrived, things got a lot more fun. He was a good guy, Kent Gilchrist. Tough loss. All right, Squire. Thank you, Squire. Up next, a Vancouver rower going to the Caribbean the hard way. Why she's hoping she won't run into a blue marlin on her journey. It's amazing. It's considered the hardest row in the world. Six weeks at sea going from the Canary Islands to Antigua on the unpredictable Atlantic Ocean. And a Vancouver woman is banding together with three lifelong friends to tackle the incredible journey. Jay Durant now with her story on This is BC. It's a rowing race unlike anything else in the world. And when Jessica Mullins tells her friends the anguish she's about to endure and the risks involved, she usually gets the same response. Are you mad? <laughs> I get that a lot. Are you, are you crazy? <laughs> Mullins will be at sea for about a month and a half. 
starting in the Canary Islands and finishing in Antigua on this eight by two and a half meter boat, appropriately named by her team. We've named our team In Deep Ship because that's exactly how we feel. They'll be trying to sleep in two hour shifts while battling conditions like this. The waves up to 40 foot, wildlife. And then there are the Marlins. Several boats ran into trouble during the last race. The Marlins spear actually penetrated the boat um, all the way into the internal cabin. It's probably the one thing, yeah, the one thing that makes me most nervous. She's taking this ultimate journey with three longtime friends who will be relying on each other for survival, hoping they can all come out smiling on the other side. Although it's physical, primarily it's a, it's a mental challenge. Uh, so we need to really understand each other and know how each other tick uh, so that we can resolve issues when we're out at sea. The team is raising money for three different charities. Jessica has picked Covenant House, which makes this harrowing crossing worthwhile. It's considered the hardest row in the world. And as Mullen says, the toughest thing she'll ever do in her life. I kite surf, I row, anything on the water. So for me, if there was gonna be a pinnacle challenge, um, climbing Everest wasn't gonna be it. This is gonna be it. This is my challenge and our, our challenge for each of us. Jay Durant, Global News. I don't know if the News Hour crew could row across False Creek. No, I could take the little harbor ferries, the Aquabus. Yeah, that, that would be better. Hey, if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, make sure you email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Six weeks of sleeping in two hour shifts. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he wants to take the and morning. You can't, and you can't like, change your mind when you're halfway out there either. I'm done. I'm going. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. See you guys. All right. Uh, quick word on the weather, Yvonne. A touch cooler for tomorrow. We've got a mainly cloudy sky, and then it warms up once again as we get in towards the weekend. A very slight chance we could even see a sprinkle out there as well. Uh, wouldn't that be nice? Okay. Thanks very much, Yvonne, and thank you for watching, everyone. See you tomorrow. Have a good night. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.